chapter 6, me buena suerte. The saloon was on the lower floor, a big bright room full of old-fashioned wooden Kenya lamps and carved candelabra. On the other side of the archway, in relative gloom, five people were absorbed in a complex game of Hunt the Moth, their eyes golden with concentration as they fanned their acoustic hands with practiced pseudo-electronic signals, listening intensely to the subsonics. In times like these, when hopes fade and our expectations of reality become uncertain, people develop a keen interest in an afterlife, the Rose would say. She would sing to him in a language he did not know until he begged her to translate. We are trapped in the glare of their headlights. Elsewhere in the saloon, men and women in couples or groups sat together drinking and talking, but taking pains not to disturb the five gamblers as they strove to simulate with a multitude of devices the serial linking, the empathic convol convolutions, the exquisite arabesques of the electronic original. Amongst those chocoreros, it was at once evident who was the real power aboard the whole hog. Fat body pulsing, the creature faced and dominated the room. The head, fallen to one side, was hidden by a queerly shaped mask, and old dust seemed to fall from its folds. The pale eyes glittered like overpolished diamonds. The top of the player's head was scarred and pitted as if by fire and a few tufts of grey-black hair sprouted here and there, while a little multicoloured bead curtain, some bizarre chadura, hung from the bottom edge of its mask, obscuring the jaw. The only flesh visible was the ruined crown and a pair of large white hands, which also bore the grey scars of fire and sat poised on the tips like obscene tarantulas, pale with menace. The masked figure was, on its right, flanked by a light-skinned but otherwise handsome half-calved woman with greased black ringlets and hard Irish eyes. Her name was Sister Honesty Marvel. She was persona non grata at the terminal for taking out an amateur in a massive psychic gambit which even broke the high limits Boudreaux Ramsadine set for the professionals. When he had made her go for good, she had sworn she would return, and the second Boudreaux saw her would be the second he died. En la playa, amigo, replied Amos Galabasta when Sam Oakenhurst found him again and asked how he was. The thin giant had grinned death's triumph and snapped his huge fingers. En la playa terminante, eh? Jolly Blanc, Jolly Blanc? He had no similar desire to return to New Orleans. The very breathing of the word Machinoy sent him into uncontrollable fits of vomiting. Next to Sister Honesty sat Carly O'Dowd. Mr Oakenhurst also knew her. Mrs O'Dowd sported a man's suit in the Andalusian style and as always bore an air of disdainful self-sufficiency. Her Moorish good looks reminded Mr Oakenhurst of some legendary Toreador. He tipped his hat when she looked up, but she could not see beyond her strategies. The two players at the other side of the Enmascarado were people Sam Oakenhurst recognised. He could only name one, Papa Hendrix, sagging with the weight of a thousand indulgences. He had once been a famous Z-star in the days when touring was still possible, when the population was considerably larger and records were still being made. Fifty percent at least of the white minority had fled north or west after the false effects began to be felt. 
Even many middle-class people had preferred to go west into the freeze to take their chances on equal terms with the whites, but mostly got caught by the quakes. Hendricks had the sybaritic, bloated look of a heavy opa. The other man with his... The other man with his huge square head had the features of an Aztec god. Even his body seemed made of granite. He moved now, slowly. It was as if ten years went by. Mr. Oakenhurst found the Aztec disturbing, but the masked man at the centre of the game horrified him. In shape, the mask resembled a map of the old US. Each state, cut out of an alumite can, had been soldered to the next. Washington bore the distinctive logo of Folger's Coffee. Texas had R.C. Cola, and Pennsylvania advertised Exxon. Hanging from the patchwork of pseudo-metal, the curtain of heavy beads veiled a suggestion of red, wet lips. Skinners burned and scarred as out of their hands and skull. Mr. Oakenhurst turned his back on the table to order a frum from the bartender, a round-faced whitey who proved unduly surly. To be civil, Sam Oakenhurst asked, What's your name, boy? Bert, said the whitey curtly. Want anything else, mister? Mr. Oakenhurst kept his own counsel. After all, he could soon be facing much more of this behaviour in the free states and he'd best get used to it. He intended to relax. For the first time since he had left the terminal, he no longer depended upon his own will. Whatever problem he found on the raft, he thought, must seem minor. He was glad there were no power weapons permitted, though he missed the comfort of his Nissan. From the shadows in the back of the big room came a sudden wheeze, a whine, and an accordion began to play Piero, Piero, Le Monde Est Fou. Some of the passages swayed to the old tune, singing the poet Amanjal's sad, ironic words, Le Monde Est Fou, my carazon d'or, Le Monde Est Fou, el mundo c'est moi. A voice from the table, soft and threatening, said, Play something else, dear. The tune changed almost instantly to two-step, the bayou teche, and a few of the couples got up to dance. The masked man returned his attention to the game. Chapter 7. Desafio Well, Mr. Minked and me came aboard at Carthage, said Carly O'Dowd. She referred to the masked man still at the table. Nice to see you, Sam. And you, Carly, how's the game? Worth your time if you're interested. She was taking a break and joined Captain Ornate and Mr. Oakenhurst at the bar. Some rough edges you could smooth out. She reached for his long right hand and drew it to her mouth. Lucky, Sam? She kissed the tip of his index finger. Maybe, he said. I don't know. Roy Ornate had grown expansive on his big pipe of oak. His cheeks glowed and his eyes bulged with bonhomie. I can think of no better pleasure than swinging your feet over the edge of the abyss and contemplating the damnation of the entire universe, he confided. Ha, Mr. Oakenhurst, you'll do. His confidences became increasingly mysterious. What a thrill, eh, to take the whole horrible vessel to the edge? cargo, crew and passengers, and hang from the lip of some hellish Niagara, every day gambling the same stake against a thousand new disasters, 
all the devil's winning hands, and every day carry back from the brink. What, playing dice with God and not a damn thing any of you fellows can do about it? I know the only man good enough to stop this planet going the way of the rest, and that's Paul Minked, and he won't do it. I would, but I can't, and that, sir, should permit me a few privileges. Well, neither Mr. Oakenhurst nor Mrs. O'Dowd could follow his reasoning. You have a great admiration for this Mr. Minked, said Sam Oakenhurst. He's my hero, admitted Captain Ornate with a confiding gesture. Now the Aztec, Carly O'Dowd had identified as Rodrigo Heat, divorced himself from the game and moved heavily over the floor to stand beside an empty chair next to Captain Ornate. Sam Oakenhurst received the impression that the masked man had sent heat to him. The Aztec's massive head inclined towards the seat, but his eyes were on Carly O'Dowd. You have a high price, lady, but that don't scare me. Sam Oakenhurst knew only one way of responding to such boorishness, and his words were out before he had properly calculated the situation. He said evenly that if Mr. Heat pursued that thread of conversation, he would be obliged to invite the Aztec outside to the place, familiarly known as and here he looked to Captain Ornate to tell him the name again. Bloody Glade, said Roy Ornate, still benign, but we discourage its use. This m &E is better than its own. He was trying a mixture, he said, recommended by Paul Minked. He displayed a garish package. Ming and Ecker's Brandy Flake. Bloody Glade, said Mr. Oakenhurst, and settled the matter a la gentile hombres. Whereupon Mr. Heat laughed open-mouthed, exuding nutmeg, and asked what was wrong with his conversation. Understanding now that he was being provoked, Sam Oakenhurst could only continue. His honour gave him no choice. It demeans a lady, he explained. Mr. Heat continued to laugh and asked where the lady in question happened to be, which led to a silence falling in the room, since Mr. Oakenhurst's principles, if not his courage, were shared by the majority of the floor's Diamantes Brutos. Very well, said Mr. Oakenhurst after a moment. I will meet you in the usual circumstances. And as if he had settled some minor matter, he turned back to signal the surly whitey for more drinks and inquire of Carly O'Dowd how her brother was doing in the border army. Aren't they romantic, Carly? I heard their winning big new tracts have restabilised up above Kansas. You're a man after my own heart, sir, suddenly says Captain Ornate. Puffing on his church wardens. Would you care for a dip from my special mixture? He reached into his coat. Give him my Ming and Eckers, Captain Ornate. Paul Minked's cruel voice chilled the house into irredeemable silence. Give Mr. Oakenhurst a dip of my own ope, and ask him if, at his convenience, he would come and join me later for a chat. It's rare to meet an equal these days. One grows so starved of intellectual cut and thrust. Chapter 8. Gracias, nada más. Caballero and Mukamia, you may be, Mr. Oakenhurst, of the highest principles and most excellent suba, but Captain Ornate allows no desafio above the whole hog, and so your affair must be abandoned till such time as you are both ashore. Those are Captain Ornate's rules. Paul Minked speaks with a certain weariness. Honour and blood, Mr. Oakenhurst. Aren't they the last resort of those who yearn for stability and cannot achieve it? 
but they are no substitute for common law. It is surely a measure of a society's decadence when it reverts to such primitive means to maintain order and self-esteem. I am one of those who still believes the court to be a more effective guarantee of social stability than the dueling field. Sam Oakenhurst murmurs that he does not at heart hold with dueling and all that goes with it, particularly the endless blood feuding which often results. When a custom sir ceases to achieve its objective, it is no longer a useful virtue, but a self-destructive vice. But the human yearning for certainty means we all cling to institutions that no longer function for our benefit, eh? None doubts your integrity or courage, Mr. Oakenhurst. Sam Oakenhurst understands that he has been tested, that his honour is not at issue. He shrugs the matter off. They sit together in the snug in the black shadows, a candle burning on the table giving unsteady life to Paul Mink's geographic mask. Mr. Oakenhurst finds himself reading the fragments of words. El Monte, Ola, Axwell Hood, Crisco, Castro, Aunt Maid, Onsen's Wax and others. Remembering his childhood when such brands were vital and had complex and casual meaning to everyone. The world's realities changed, he thinks, long before the advent of the fault. The fault is perhaps the result of that change, not the cause. He cannot give his entire attention to Paul Mink's words. The man disturbs and fascinates him. He gathers Paul Mink respects him, which is why he has taken aside. He has been taken aside like this and not admonished in public, and he is relieved. But he knows he could never trust the enmascarado. Paul Mink could change his mood at a moment's notice and casually kill him. Sam Oakenhurst is close to admitting he made a mistake. He should have found the nerve to stick it out at Ambry's until the sternwheeler came by. His self-disgust only serves to fuel his discomfort. He wishes the enmascarado would leave him alone, but already guesses Mr Mink planned somehow to use him. Paul Mink had been a blankie chaser in the old days, Carly O'Dowd would say. Mr. Mink had gone after bounty boys, always willing to take a dead or alive. One day he had crossed the big bridge into Louisiana with six red scalps on his belt. All that was mortal of the Kennedy pack, which ran wild for a while near Texarkana, and announced they'd founded a white republic. Captain Ornate retired. Mrs. O'Dowd called for more drinks. Paul Mink's a man who gets what? or who he wants, one way or another. He was Van Beek's main chaser. He hates whiteys with a passion and would wipe them all out if he could. He loathes them so bad, some of us think maybe he's a blankie himself, or anyway a breed who was fortunate enough to be burned in a fire. Like a, the blankie he went to hell, got burned black and thought he'd gone to heaven. I loosen up, Sam. Nothing much ever happens on the whole hog. I was in a bad fire or two in my time, Mr. Oakenhurst. Paul minked fingers, the tufts of hair on his skull. You should hear my wife complain. But someone must bring home the bacon. We're the chaps who have to get out there in the world, eh? Nobody will do it for us. We are never allowed or encouraged to the best. That's the shame of it. We must seek the best for ourselves. It is what drives us, I suspect, almost secretly. Will you be joining our little pasatiempo? You'd be very welcome. When Mr. Oakenhurst accepts the veiled order with the same grace with which it is given, one of Paul Mink's unsightly hands reaches into him. 
It reaches into his and welcomes him to the school. He told me he had been in and out of the fault five times. He says he knows secret trails which only he had the courage to discover. It is true that in the main he has no fear. Does he fear anything, Carly? Something? I don't know. Is there a Yugador brave enough to find out? Paul Minked offers his own pouch. A cut above the brandy flake. It's M&E's number three. They'll try to tell you it's extinct, but they're still making it down in Mexico. Against his better judgment, Sam Oakenhurst fills his long-stemmed pipe. Senor Heat is an old colleague of mine, Paul Minked receives the ope again and puts it away. Volatile and blunt, as you know, and a little uncouth, but one of the world's great people. He discovered the factory. The last Ming and Ekas is in a place called Wadi Alhara, the River of Stones in Arabic. The Indian dialects give it a similar name, Guadalajara, the Spanish say. Mr. Heat made his second fortune bringing it back. This stuff's what the old days were about, Mr. Oakenhurst. Not much of a vice compared to some we hear of. That's what I remind my wife. She's overly worried. My health, now that's a woman for you, isn't it? My health, as a matter of fact, has never been better, but there you are. Now, Mr. Oakenhurst, I know your credentials, and I must say I'm impressed. How would you like to come in on a small venture I'm organising? Well, sir, says Sam Oakenhurst, I guess it depends on the game. Well, very good, Mr. Oakenhurst, I take your point. This is in the nature of an exploratory expedition. But only the likes of us can even contemplate the kind of adventure I have in mind. Only a trained Yugador has the patience, the experience and the gumption for it. And Mrs. O'Dowd says you're one of the best. Played evens with Jack Karakwazian. Once, agrees Sam Oakenhurst. Well, quite enough for me, sir. I'm recruiting, Mr. Oakenhurst, a few brave souls, outstanding individuals who will join an expedition to accompany me into the Biloxi Fault. Sam Oakenhurst has a taste for pain, but not for death. He resolves to play along with this madman whose pale, unblinking eye awaits his acceptance, but if the time comes, he will never go with him. That would be suicide. He will jump off the raft the first moment they sight land and put this fresh lunacy behind him. He shakes Paul Minkett's hand. Chapter 9. Escudo de Oro. Mr. Sam Oakenhurst did not immediately join the game, but claiming weariness retired early and stood on a little landing outside his door, taking the ill-smelling air and staring over the dark water. No light escaped the spot in which they rode, but through the dirty cloud a little moonlight fell, making the water sinister with half-seen shapes. In seeking to avoid the machinois temptations, Mr. Oakenhurst had put himself on an equally unwelcome predicament. Paul Minked had horrible authority, and taken unaware, Sam Oakenhurst had been unable to resist it. Tomorrow he would test Mr. Minked's mettle, if he could, in that acoustic game they played, and get some notion of the man's resonances. He had not been manipulated so expertly since he was 14. He believed Paul Minked to be a charlatan, probably crazy, perhaps even messianic in some way. Frequently a secret faith too insane to risk upon the air fueled such aggressive solipsism. The man appeared to have the tastes of a Torquemada, 
and the savage appetites of a European warlord. Norway's a strong hand, thought Mr. Oakenhurst. His lies would therefore be complicated and self-convincing. Mr. Oakenhurst had lived for months at a time beside the fault and knew it well. He had seen a what? He had seen a woman from Jackson walk in at the semi-permanent section known as the Custard Bowl and disintegrate, bawling for help as soon as she reached the so-called East Wall. A turbulent tower sometimes emerging within the bowl, usually coloured deep red and black. On another occasion, he had held a rope for Cab Rass, the famous daredevil, as he went in through the glistening organic scarlet of Ketchup Cove. He had vanished. The rope had fallen to the surface as if cut, and Raz was gone for good. Everything was consumed by the Biloxi fault. Was Paul Minked merely reluctant to die alone? Mr. Oakenhurst did not doubt the enmascarado's courage or ferocity, the man's murderous determination, but could not fathom Paul Minked's objectives. Perhaps Mr. Minked had actually convinced himself that he could survive the fault and others with him. It was not a belief Sam Oakenhurst wished to put to the test, yet for all his evident insanity, the man continued to terrify Sam Oakenhurst, who wondered if Paul Minked already had his measure as he did not have Paul Minkt's. The game would answer most of his questions. He was no Jack Caraquazian nor Kalinda de Vero, but he had held his own with the rest. Most of the lights were now extinguished to conform with Captain Ornate's tough curfew enforced by a gang of breed blankies under their own vicious leaders. The raft rocked a little in the water and a powerful shaft of moonlight broke through full on the whole hog as if God for a moment had turned his undivided attention on them. A voice came up to him out of the shadows. Time for bed, Sam? Good evening, Carly. Sam Oakenhurst wanted to learn all she knew of Paul Minked. I've a bottle of Ackroyd's, I know you'll taste. Carly O'Dowd had little more real information. She remembered a story that Paul Minkt's hatred of whites could be relatively recent, following a fire started by his own relatives from Baton Rouge. But there was a different story of how Paul Minkt had been a member of the Golala sect, which understood death by fire to be a guarantee of heaven. She asked Sam if he believed in an afterlife. Well, I have a hunch your soul has a home to go to. That was all Sam Oakenhurst would say on the matter. But when she asked if he thought God dealt everyone a square hand, he shook his head. He considered that lately. He had considered that lately, he said, and had to admit God's dealing sometimes seemed a little uneven. But I don't think he plays dice, Carly. He plays a hand of poker against the devil, and some of us believe it's our job to help him. Some of us even do a little bit about it. He shrugged. Jesus, said Carly, I doubt I never heard anyone describe gambling as a moral duty before. Ain't this the end of everything, Sam? Ain't it over for us? Maybe, said Sam Oakenhurst. But I got a feeling it evens out. Like luck, you know. Carly O'Dowd took a long pull on the pipe and sipped her winking acroids. Quid pro quo, said Mr Oakenhurst. Allez, los tigres she sang softly, 
My baby sends me this list on nine miles in compere. Oh baby, you won't surprise you darlingies. In the morning she insisted he come to the open window to look over the ragged shanty town towards the east, where the cloud had cleared and red sunlight rose in broad rays from the watery horizon, staining the whole lake a lively ruby. Against this redness, a single black outline moved. It's coming closer. Sam Oakenhurst squinted to improve his focus. It's a big heron, Carly. He shivered. He took her slight body to his. Bigger. It was an aircraft. A beautiful white flying boat with six pairs of wing-mounted roaring engines and whistling air screws moving to make a preliminary pass at the water intending to land. The flying boat was turned a sudden subtle pink by the sun. Everyone on the raft was up and out in haste to see the splendid craft. Pilgrims and Yugadors all wondered at the wealth it took to squander so much colour upon an antique conceit. And then, throttling down to a confident thud, the flying boat came to settle, light as a gull upon the surface. The big engines fell silent. Water lapped at her ivory hull. Almost at once a door above the lower wing opened and a figure stepped out, dragging a small inflatable. The yellow rubber boat blended with the sulphurous waters as black and yellow cloud drew itself around the sun like a cloak. Through the gloom of the night new day the figure began to row, calling out in a melodious, ringing voice. Ahoy the raft! Is this the whole hog and Captain Roy ornate? Just up from his quarters in his Monday whites and weak need with wonderment, Captain Ornate could barely lift his megaphone to usher an unsteady... I am Captain Roy Ornate, master of the whole hog. Be warned that we accept no metal. Who calls the ship? This was a formal exchange as between river captains. The rower replied, Mrs. Rose Von Beck, lately out of Guadalajara with a package for Mr. Paul Minked. Is Mr. Minked aboard, sir? The weight of the curious crowd began to tilt the raft dramatically. The shanty dwellers were set upon by the blankies led by a plague-pocked overseer and beaten back into order. To add to their humiliation, they were forced into their windowless dwellings, denied any further part of the miracle. Well, Mr. Mink is one of our passengers, agreed Royal Nate, his own curiosity undisguised. It's the nature of your goods, ma'am. Before the rower could answer, Paul Mink, massively fat, his body wrapped in lengths of multicoloured velvet, rolled up to Captain Ornate's size to stand stroking his beaded veil as another might stroke at a beard. He took the megaphone from the grateful master and spoke in a wet, amplified soprano. So you found me at last. Is that my MND come up from Mexico, dear? Any answer Mrs. Von Beck might have been might have made was drowned by six bellowing engines as the flying boat began to taxi up over the endless yellow lake and with a parting shriek vanished into the air. The inflatable came up against embarking steps thick with mould. A slim, athletic woman stepped aboard, her features disguised by a cowl on her cape which fell in blue-green folds almost to the deck. Maybe a white woman? She had a small oilskin package in her left hand. By now, Mr Oakenhurst and Mrs O'Dowd, fully dressed, stood on the landing, listening to the silence returning. I'm much obliged, ma'am. 
Paul Minked reached for his package. One would have to be Scrooge himself to begrudge the extra little bit it takes to get your MND delivered. He turned, his mask on one side, as if an apology to Sam Oakenhurst. I'll admit it's a terrible extravagance of mine. You should hear my wife on the subject. Had he arranged this whole charade merely to demonstrate his power and wealth? The woman pushed her cowl back to reveal a most wonderful dark golden pink skin, washed with the faintest browns and greens, some kind of sensitive North African features, reminding Mr. Oakenhurst of those aquiline Berbers from the deep Maghribi desert. Her auburn hair reflected the colour of her cloak, and her lips were a startling scarlet, as if they bled. She was as tall as Sam Oakenhurst, for her extraordinary grace fascinated him. He had never seen movement like it. He found himself staring at her, even as she took Paul Minkett's arm and made her way to the main saloon. Her perfume was delicious. What would you call that colour skin, murmured Carly O'Dowd. Chapter 10 Los Spells du Canada I tasted a thousand scales to reach this place. Mrs. Von Beck had been joined at her table by Sister Honesty Marvel, Mrs. O'Dowd and Rodrigo Heat, but she kept a seat beside her empty, and this she now offered to Mr. Oakenhurst, who bowed, brushed back his tails, and wished her good morning as he sat down beside her. He wondered why she seemed familiar. At close quarters, the greenish blush of her hands, the pink gold of her cheeks, had a quality which made all other flesh seem unnatural. He had never before felt such strong emotion in the presence of beauty. In amused recognition of his admiration, she smiled. Clearly, she was also curious about him. You are of the Yugadisti persuasion, Mr. Oakenhurst. I make a small living from my good fortune, ma'am. Had he ever felt as he did now, at the centre of a concert while the music achieved some ecstatic moment? Was he looking on the true face of his lady, his luck? Where would she take him? Home? He realised to his alarm that he was on the verge of weeping. Well, Mr Oakenhurst, Mrs Von Beck continued, you would know a flat game, I hope, if one turned up for you. And Granny's Claw? Is that still played in these parts? Not to my knowledge, ma'am. I need an ally, she said in an urgent signal which marked her as his peer. Paul Minked is my mortal enemy and will destroy me if he recognises me. Will you help? He returned her signal. At your service, Mrs. Von Beck. Well, no sworn Yugador could have refused her. Their mutual code demanded instant compliance. Only an extreme niche did one of his kind thus address appear, but he would have helped her anyway. He was entirely infatuated with her. He began to wonder what other allies and of what calibre he might find here. Did fear or some profound sense of loyalty bind Rodrigo Heat to Paul Minked? Carly O'Dowd, given to sudden swings of affection, would be unreliable at best. Roy Ornate was clearly Paul Minked's man. Sister Honesty Marvel might side with them, if only out of a habitual need to destroy potential rivals. 
Meanwhile, Mr. Oakenhurst would have to follow Mrs. Von Beek's lead until she told him to do otherwise. Her fingers dropped from the grey-green pearls and coral at her throat, while his own hands lost interest in his links. Their secret exchange was, for a moment, at an end. It had been seven years, twenty-eight seasons by current reckoning, since Mr. Oakenhurst had been in a similar situation, and that had been the start of his friendship with Jack Karakwazian. On this occasion, however, the intellectual thrill, the thrill of the big risk, was coupled with an overwhelming desire for the rose, given extra edge by his own anxious guess that perhaps she was a little attracted to him. Even the chemistry with Serdia, his wife, had not been so strong. The sensation attacked his mind as well as his flesh, while the cool part of him, the trained Yugador, was taking account of this wonderful return of feelings he had thought lost forever. He considered new odds. Do you think it will be long before we reach the freeze, Mr Ornate? She looked up as the skipper returned with a tray on which stood an oak cafetiere and some delicate rosewood cups. Here you go, ma'am. Here you go, I fixed it myself. You can't trust these blankies to fix good coffee. The man was blushing like a rat on a hot spot, oblivious to the open derision on Rodrigo Heat's old-fashioned head. Mr. Oakenhurst relaxed his body and settled into his chair. Paul Minked would make his entrance at any moment. Shall we play? Horses of the Second Ether, Warwick Colvin Jr. The story so far. After successfully rhyming the balance and at the same time restoring the singularity to its former power, but no more, Captain Billy Bob and her bucko busters in their ship, Now the Clouds Have Meaning, set course into the second ether again, for the mountains of palest blue and deepest white, where they believe the swippling swarm must pass. In common with most others who explore the second ether, Captain Billy Bob and her crew are searching for Ko O Ko, the lost universe. In that section of the second ether known as Blue and White Mountain Country, where the ships of all four exploring races drift against vast, semi-stable masses of curling, frozen laughter, which float like icebergs, half in and half out of the continua, they await the coming of the swippling swarm. The swippling is a kind of bird, capable of flying between the various spheres, or planes of the multiverse, and said to migrate between the 19th Ether and Ko O Ko, the lost universe. It is the intention of the various ships waiting at anchor in the blue and white mountain field to track the swippling storm back to Ko O Ko. There are two rival types of Humes, the chaos engineers who delight in all forms of experience and are hugely tolerant of all other logics, and the followers of the singularity, which rules the large part of the Humes' home continuum, still dreams of imposing full linearity upon what it perceives as the unformed chaos of the far greater part of the multiverse. Two other rivals, as indistinguishable to Humes as Humes are to them, the Skiplings and the Skimlings, have, or assume, corporeal forms which are not entirely stable. The two races both claim to be descendants of the many different peoples who inhabit their home spheres across a band of continua, still inaccessible to Hume ships of either persuasion. The Humes know little of the Skiplings or Skimlings, while those people seem to have an intimate knowledge of all things Hume. All seek to find the legendary lost universe, Ko O Ko. 
One of the ships lying uneasily in stasis in the blue and white mountain country is Billy Bob Begg's famous old rival, Captain Horace Quelch, commanding the Linear B, together with a scratch fleet, including the straight arrow, the definite article, the absolute truth, and the only way. They plan to claim Ko O Ko, the lost universe, in the name of the singularity. The other Hume ships are all of the chaos persuasion, a loose confederation of merchant adventurers, including ruby dancers. I don't want to go to Chelsea. My memories. And the blue gardenia. Many events have led to this moment, many adventures amongst the participants, frequently involving the singularity's implacable hatred of the chaos engineers. Every afternoon in the blue and white mountain field, Captain Billy Bob and her ship are forced to leave for a few relative hours in pursuit of her famous hopping legs, stolen by scraplings for their brass. And, and once to aid Captain Quelch when the Linear B was holed by a slipling between continua. The sliplings are the so-called corsairs of the second ether, though others call them carrion rats, preying on all continua travellers at their weakest transitions. Although related to skiplings and skimlings, the sliplings are hated by both. It is on this matter that the first beast of the skimlings, Ra, has called a conference attended by the skipling first beast, Roro, by Captain Quelch and Captain Billy Bob Begg, elected main types for their respective camps. Now read on. Chapter 204, Skipling Courtesies. There is no war between skiplings and skimlings, we simply refuse to communicate. Yet both races shun sliplings, for they are unnatural and immoral carrion. These so-called corsairs are no better than a cancer which should be treated or eradicated. It is your duty, Captain Begg, to support us in this policy. So spoke Sterling the Skipling, second beast of the power in contemplation. With all authority, for he was equal to the extraordinary beautiful chief engine. He illustrated his words with broad movements of his fiery arms. We travel, swing, undulation. Sometimes we go with you, fold, unfold. Sometimes with the heavy ones. We fall with them, Captain Quelch, ho. And this is very thrilling for us and also dangerous. What might have been mammalian eyes moved behind the lattice of insectoid prisms. Two sets of eyes at least, perhaps more. Captain Quelch had heard a claim for seven or eight layers of specialised eyes and five graduated sets of independently articulated teeth. Nah, to your equations. Nah, nah, we are Humes. We are Humes too. We are everything. <laughs> what are you not? demanded the sneering, unconvinced Quelch. A pause. We are not God. They are angels, says Romantic Minnie. Warring angels. War in heaven. She points to the R. Look, it's proof. But her theory is disliked. Corporal Organ takes her, takes her aside. It is your duty not to warn the living, but to comfort the dead and the soon-to-be dead. You have no function to alarm, no need. Yours is a gentler destiny, if sadder. Suddenly they looked back to the aft screens and the black and yellow sphere where the once hiding place of the linear B, but for now Quelch's whereabouts were known to them. Or were they? Chapter 205 Heavy Duties All Round 
slit my beak. Capricorn Schultz, banker to the homeboy Tong, made a fist in his right wing. Slime my quills. Farping Z equals Z squared plus farping C. You await your diamond allies, but your carbon chief is far, Captain Q, wherever you slip. I cough up your great idea, skimpling posses, dirty tips. Skimplings are too discreet about their origins. I could lead the world there. Foolish Hume with your filthy bone. Tis no skimpling you address, but a slippling weed. Ah, insidious creeper, stamp on it. His reluctant ally, Big Ball, the skimpling renegade, backs away. He has no defences against slipplings of any size. Capricorn Shorts often asks him why one so sickly chose the buccaneering trade, which was nothing after all if not strenuous, but all Big Ball would allow was that it was a family calling. Capricorn Shorts does not need to remind him of the fate of his sister merchant adventurous. He had, long, he had last made out the deep shadows, black and white, of the scarab's son, embedded in hard space while the rest of the insect legs and carapace waved in the bitter freedom of the second ether. Hers had not been a scale fault, but a problem of misleading pseudo-attractors. Nonetheless, he had thrown up as the significant mathematics clarified on his screen. Those mathematics had, he had known even then, been none other than Capricorn Schultz's. For only Schultz lacked all conscience, and was a well-known wrecker, an illusionist capable of creating pseudo-attractors almost indistinguishable from the real thing. Yet there was always the slight possibility that Schultz was blameless. The scarab's son would not, after all, be the first victim to a mirage attractor. The strains of Duke Ellington and Jimi Hendrix drifted up from the old gardens and filled Big Ball with a comfortable nostalgia for which he was grateful. He was convinced that, by throwing in with Capricorn Schultz, he had shorted his scale rather badly. Chapter 206 Green Dragon Country Bibby Boo Big sprawls before the R as she attunes herself to the voice. Here she trills now, is the tale according to my understandings and my art of the turbulence buckaroos and their raidings in the second ether, before the multiverse was tame and music was indistinguishable from matter. In the grand past when forever faded to aft and the easy future forever loomed forward, all a single golden moment, a scale apart. Dungo the murderer is poised at the pod unbeknownst to Bibi Boo, who has no education in the classics. Is this innocence or ignorance? In the confusion, nobody has thought to educate her. Who is morally to blame for what happens next? To be continued. <laughs>